backroom politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents, longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider. He's the man that we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Alan, good afternoon, sir. Hey, good afternoon, Justin. And joining us also uh, from the hinterlands of Northern Virginia, he is the man that we know as the retired one-star admiral in your United States Navy. He is Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, how are you? Fine, Justin. How are you? Doing fantastic. And joining us from the Big Apple, the city so big that they named it twice, she is the former legal counsel to then presidential candidate Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential campaign. She's Democratic political operative and attorney in the great state of New York and New Jersey. She is Sharmila Achari, Esquire. Hello, Sharmila. Hi, Justin. Hi, everyone. And, hey, of Charmla. course, I'm your, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We obviously have got a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on. But we've got fights. We, we, this this is a fight bill that we've never seen before. This is the thriller in Manila, nothing. This is the thriller in D.C. We have in one corner the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, and in the other corner, apparently everybody. So let's talk about this for a second. The POTUS seems to be at war with everybody from his own cabinet to the Senate pretty much writ large. And pretty much everybody in the Republican establishment, that's not to mention the naturally ongoing fighting that he's got with Democrats. But he seems to have a better uh, relationship with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer than he does with Paul Ryan and uh, Mitch McConnell, which is surprising. Alan, let me start with you. Um, we, we, we've seen – uh, the the latest. Let's let's just start in the cabinet, for example. The back and forth between uh, Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump, whereas Rex Tillerson was reported last week by NBC, apparently said several derogatory things, including that the man is a quote effing moron. Uh, and then this has gone back and forth, and then an awkward apology from Rex Tillerson. What can we truly believe about the relationship that is ongoing between Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump right now? Well, I think that what we're seeing is, is not only with uh, with, with Tillerson, um, uh, but with uh, members of the Senate, a continuing pattern of the president saying ugly, nasty things about people in Washington with whom he has to work, some of whom work directly for him and others, uh, (laughs) members of the legislature, particularly the Senate, who he thinks work for him or should work for him and who, because he doesn't seem to uh, understand very well how the government works, actually represent constituencies. Uh, they work for the good of the country. They also work for the good of their constituents as they see it. So 
it's been a bad week because some of the stuff was uh, so ugly and is still playing out, but it's nothing new. And that's uh, particularly sad in its own way. Sharmila, are we just hypersensitive to the fact that, you know, we, we expect the president to kind of have this little back and forth between Democrats on the Hill and the White House? Are we just hypersensitive to the fact that he's now, you know, eating his own, for lack of a better term, he's literally just at war with his own Secretary of State and other cabinet members? I don't think we should be hypersensitive to it. To the extent we are, I think it's because this is so unprecedented. Whatever squabbles or disagreements that presidents had with their cabinet or with members in the legislature of their own party, I'm sure they've happened in history. I'm sure Alan could you know, tell us many stories of times when, uh, when presidents disagreed with the people in the Senate or, um, or in the cabinet, but they have all been very behind closed doors. The fact that this is spilling out so publicly and the fact that Bob Corker felt really compelled to speak publicly because he thought that was the only way he'd get the president to listen really indicates how historic and unprecedented and, frankly, worrying this is. Admiral Ken, this has got to be a little bit worrisome for Secretary of Defense uh, General James Mattis uh, because apparently the conversation where the Secretary of State called uh, POTUS a effing moron uh, was in a private discussion with the Secretary of Defense, uh, and it leaked out. Should this be concerning that, number one, Mattis can't have a – private dialogue with an equal member of the cabinet or two is disturbing the fact that Mattis can't meet with anybody without it getting leaked out to the press. Well, I I think there's two sides to this. So um, one, just from the ability of these people to be able to carry on and have conversations um, in the clear, if you will, about what's going on around them uh, without those conversations being leaked, I guess at some level should be, um, concerning for them. Um, Quite frankly, on the other side of the coin, it makes me feel comfortable that, that I'm not the only crazy person out here, you know, that, that there there are other people, (laughs) that there are other people, you know, that are sane, that are within uh, those, those walls, those halls that I used to walk that are having the same thoughts and are in our, and are of the same mind that this, this, this administration is just it's a train wreck and they have done nothing um i don't believe uh if if if, okay maybe nothing's too far they've done very little to uh to uh, maintain the respect and the dignity that that office demands so um i think there's two sides to this but ken question what can they do so we've all read the new york times stories and the political stories and every other publication about how Chief of Staff Kelly, how General Mattis, how General McMaster try their best to control the president and to ask him to be more prudent and more conciliatory in what he says. But how can you control someone who really chafes at being controlled, whose personality is fundamentally built on rebelling against what people tell him to do? You can't. And so I think that the administration, to your point, is a hot mess, but it's a hot mess purely because of the man at the top. Yeah, absolutely. And, and last week, Justin posed the question, 
you know, what would I do, or, or I paraphrase, what would I do if I were General Kelly? And I responded, I wouldn't have taken that job. I mean, you, you, this is this is this is not a situation that seems to be improving. People kept waiting for the pivot. There, there were one or two moments um, from speeches. Well, yeah, there, there it is, there it is. But you know, within 24 to 48 hours after those events, we were back on the same uh, same side of the street, looking at the train, uh, looking at the car wreck, going, "Wow, that's that's really bad." So. Let me go to Alan real quick, because Alan, you know, uh, Charlotte brings up uh, a good point about General Kelly is we have the ongoing fight with uh, or the ongoing non-fight fight with the White House and Foggy Bottom, President Trump and Secretary uh, Tilson. There's the added crunch of President Trump now having an open Twitter war, not unlike Kardashian – uh, Taylor Swift, this is an open Twitter war between the President of the United States and a one-time Senate supporter and, Senate, and retiring Senator Corker. Uh, how, do, how do we get our arms wrapped around this as being not just normal, but a new reality? Well, I... <laughs> I don't know that it's a new normal. Uh, I haven't seen anything like this um, uh, that's so public. Of course, we haven't had uh, the the digital universe that we now have, the social media that allows for uh, uh, in instant messages to, to go everywhere, and a president who chooses to communicate that way. There's this irony uh, that it seems to me that you bring in General Kelly, he creates some order. The president agrees. Okay, we're not going to have 50 people have walk in the door access to you. They have to come through me. You agree? Because if you don't, I don't want this job. Um, and and the, and the president agrees, agrees, agrees. He he says he loves his generals. Now the problem with the new the the new restrictions on the president, as it turns out, is that he chafes, he resists these rules. He has sort of this this build up stress and anger, and he needs an outlet. And sometimes in the past, I'm guessing he got the outlet by just exploding to the people who would walk in the room and trash this person or trash that person. He doesn't have all those outlets anymore. So <laughs> it may, it makes his daily tweet storm even riskier. Whether he's talking about uh, the, the head of North Korea or uh, a, a widely well-respected senator, um, Bob Corker, um, or... Rex Tillerson or Jeff Sessions in his own cabinet. It's it's as though he can't. He he apparently says yes, yes, yes. I I want to I want to uh, make this a more disciplined operation, uh, and yet he blows up any progress within days or weeks of some issue coming up. Now I. And for one, think that Corker made a mistake. I know Corker a little bit. I am a huge admirer of Corker. Um, 
and and I, it's very clear. It's been clear for a long time that a lot of Republicans feel the way uh, Corker now publicly says, and, and Corker obviously confirmed that. But there was no, no surprise there. Um, I'm just trying to figure out how there's any benefit to the Republicans, to the country, um, with uh, this warfare out there so public. Um, I mean, believe me, I'm not walking in, in, in Senator Corker's shoes, and I like the man. Um, but- I'm just thinking that, 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 that this it was – it was unfortunate. I, it's understandable. My God, he was certainly provoked. And but Alan, what, you, Alan, you, there's just, no surprise that when you strike out at the president, he's going to come back ten times over at you. Alan, let me just jump in real quick and ask you this question, and then and then Charmla, I, I want to follow it up with you, uh, Alan. Mm-hmm. How does right now we're hearing that the president has on his agenda that he wants done before the end of the year the following. Tax reform, uh, pulling out of the – or decertifying the Iran deal. Uh, he wants uh, immigration reform. He wants uh, a, a – still wants an infrastructure uh, deal to be brought to the table. That, that's four or five major pieces of political agenda. How does he expect to get that – heavy lift agenda through by the end of the year having these fights with his own party in the Capitol. You're you're asking a question that he doesn't ask himself. He doesn't have a plan. That's true. He he is – how do I know the answer? He He doesn't know the answer. He doesn't ask the question. We all ask the question, hey, do you care at all about a legislative program? If so, do you understand that you need, in, 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 a, a, in a handful of instances, at least 50 votes, and in many other instances, at least 60 votes? Do you realize that? Do you realize these guys are independent actors, not reliant on you? They're elected to office, and if they don't agree with you, um, and and make a political judgment that they don't have to to fall in line behind you or their own leadership on something. They won't, and they sure as hell don't owe you anything because you have made no effort whatsoever to be helpful to them or supportive of them. You give in one hand and you take away double with the other. So, but this is not a guy who thinks strategically he doesn't think long term he's not done this before he hasn't paid attention to it and he obviously is not learning so i have no you know there's nothing magic about finishing anything by the end of the first year there is something to be said for getting something done while you're president um usually it's easier to get bigger stuff done in the first year and then the first half of the second year and then you're all into to election mode. Um, we're already hearing all kinds of talk about uh, the midterm elections and and uh, challenges to Republicans um, that 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 may emerge. I mean, Donald Trump doesn't think strategically. He cares about the news cycle. He cares about 
uh, about a few good comments in writing or on TV, and he loves the love of his shrinking number of true-believing followers. That's not a recipe for getting stuff done on any timetable. Sharmila, I mean, this has got to make the Democrats on the Hill, i.e. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, just wildly ecstatic at the fact that they now have fodder going in not only to midterms, but to possibly 2020 saying, hey, look, this guy's living in a fantasy world. This guy, whatever legislative agenda he says he has, he can't even get his major pillar agenda items even up for discussion on the floor, let alone through regular order. I mean, I agree, and it would be all the sweeter if the Democrats had a cohesive message and some viable candidates. So, you know, while this is great for people like me who want to say, I told you so all the time, um, I don't know how much long-term help it really gives the Democrats, because ultimately you saw that you know, Donald Trump has been engaging in petty spats and feuds since the day he announced his his candidacy. This is nothing well before new. Really. Then. Well before then. Well before yeah, then. True. But in, in terms of his political career, in, in terms of even pretending to embody presidential values, since the beginning of his campaign, his, his behavior has been largely unchanged. So, and right in the up, and we still lost in November. So I think that Yes, while this is a nice bit of schadenfreude for the Democrats, this is not enough. And I actually wanted to respond to um, Alan's point earlier, which was how he expected to uh, how he expected to pass any of his legislation, and why this uh, why this feud with Corker is you know getting so much traction. I honestly don't understand how what Corker is saying is any different from what Ben Sachs has been saying for a year and a half, what you know, Jeff Flake and John McCain have danced around, what Susan Collins has danced around less subtly. So I don't, you know, on one hand, I, I understand that this is more significant because this is someone who actively supported Donald Trump, but I don't really see how Corker's, what's happening with Corker right now is really very different from things that, Members of the Republican caucus have been saying. If, for I, at if least I may, if I may, Admiral, go, Admiral, go ahead. I, I think I think the big difference is that um, most of the other people that that Sharmila has mentioned have been very very cautious in their tones and in their criticisms, and Corker is the first one, for all practical purposes, uh, to, to to who who's a, who's a leader um, in the party and in Congress to step way over the line and speak his mind completely in the same, in the same kind of tune that Donald Trump speaks when he goes critical. That said, um, I, I've seen, you know, I guess in the last few hours, a lot of um, um, commentators um, making, uh, using the words courageous on the part of, uh, of uh, Corker. Honestly, I, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, you know, I think had if Corker were were uh, not retiring, if he were planning on running again, or if those words came out of the the mouths of, of people like Paul Ryan, or um, uh, the the senator from 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 South Carolina whose name is escaping me just now, 
Lindsey Graham. Thank you, Lindsey Graham. That would be courageous in that they are risking something uh, in their political in their political futures to basically come out and say, you know what, this is not the way that we want our party to be represented. Then that would be courageous. And so, quite frankly, you know, I, I think I think while um, the 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 back and forth between uh, Corker and the president is quasi entertaining. I put it in the same category as I do the president's war with the NFL in that it is a distraction. It is, it is a distraction to keep us uh, from talking ab- about the real thing. And the real thing is, one, he's not getting any of his gen- agenda really passed and uh, in, in, uh, other things he wants to do. He has basically uh, stabbed Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer in the back on this DACA deal. And none of that is getting the play. What's getting the play is this little spat between these two these two people and the NFL thing. And but none of the, the really important stuff about governing this country is being talked about. Alan Moore, the bigger question I have is can the can can the Trump administration I mean, we are not even a full year into <laughs> Donald Trump's administration. And we have seen a turnover like we've barely seen before. We are seeing internal strife that is historic. Can the Trump administration survive this, let alone can the Trump administration be effective in this? Well, survive. those are two very different things. You know, we elect presidents for four years. Um, usually they make it. Um, and uh, barring barring uh, the rare case of uh, of uh, resignation, resignation um, and and uh, or or you know some 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 other event, of, some other event um, some right. some tragedy. Um, uh, so if, if the likelihood to me is we will survive it and he will survive it. Um, and very little will get done um, that is useful to the country because he is incapable of figuring out what the, his powers are and what his limits are and what kind of tone and focus and prioritization he needs to have to be an effective partner with uh, enough members of Congress uh, to make some things happen that could be of benefit. In the meantime, in the meantime, the survival question raises these other uncomfortable uh, notions. And this is what sets Corker apart, in, in, in my judgment, why this is not more of what we've heard before, is he got right to the question of whether this president is a, a, a existential, even, risk to the country. Is this a man who could lead us into World War III? Is this a man who, but for a few grown-ups around him, uh, would have this country in chaos. Those are the things that that uh, Senator Corker uh, has said. No, no firebrand, no 
screamer, um, no sharp-tongued guy. He's kind of been moving uh, in this direction, uh, and suddenly it all came out. That's why um, it's not that he doesn't have a point. Good God, we've been saying that ourselves, and I'm sure these Republicans say it to each other. Going public with it, though, there's the question. Is it helpful to go public? Does it help the country? Does it help the Republican Party? Um, uh, does it does it help any kind of useful, necessary uh, political agenda? I don't think it does. That's why I wish he had had uh, found some other words to respond. And and yet, <laughs> I, I if I were it's, a, it's a, a subject just, it, of the kind that, of though. stuff that. You know, I, I, I I'm not I don't walk in his shoes. I, I Alan, let me Alan, let me jump in real quick because one of the things you know that we've got to look at here is number one, you know, just today, uh, it, during the White House press briefing, uh, it was stated that you know when the question was asked, you know, did did the president in fact. Uh, did the president, in fact, tell Senator Corker no after the president claimed he begged him for an endorsement? Is that true? Because uh, we've heard the other side is is that Senator Corker is now stating that it was the president that asked him to reconsider retiring, and Corker said no. But the, in the press briefing today, they are standing by this story that seems to be more and more ludicrous the deeper and deeper we go down this rabbit hole. Does this is this effectively going to wipe out a good chunk of credibility that the president not only has with his constituents but with the global community as a whole? No, I, yeah, this is. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Shabla. No, sorry, a short sarcastic aside. Justin, this is the same person who claimed 1.5 million people were at his inauguration. This is the same person who said the travel ban is not a ban, which makes it not a ban. I'm not sure what credibility there really was to begin with. <laughs> well, that, that, fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. No, but... I, I, yeah, and I, I agree with I agree with Sharmila there. It's not it's not like this guy has got got uh, you know his word is his bond. This is a guy who's being accused daily by credible people of being a liar. Now, I, I don't like that the liar word. I prefer to simply say uh, he says things that he knows to be untrue. Um, initially, you can say things and you're, just, and you're just wrong, right? You think something is this and it really isn't, but you say so. Then when you're corrected, most people say, oops, I stand corrected. Um, it turns out that this, these are the facts. He doubles down. He says it again and again and again when it's provably Wrong. So the first time, it doesn't happen to be true. After that, you move into into the lying territory in my in in, in the Alan Moore world. And so this guy has moved around uh, in all of that territory for for quite a long time. His problem is that when he says the facts are A, and somebody like Bob Corker says the facts are B, and you can't have it be both A and B. Who does the 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 who who do the thinking people, who do the legislators, who do the media think is telling the truth? They think Bob Corker's telling the truth because of the the history of the president. Now, there are people in America, a lot of them, 
who believe him. No matter right. what he says, they believe him. Um, but but some of the people who believe, you know, some of the people who used to believe him don't anymore. And then others say, "Hey, okay, I believe you. I don't care. That's not I, the point." I got. Who I got to say something. Who There's said no? no who said what? There's no sense of loyalty in the president that I've seen. You know, he, you know his. Look at what he's done with Jeff Sessions. Look at what he's done with Rex Tillerson. Uh, look at what he's done with Bob Corker. It just keeps going. We've got a call, by the way. Caller from the 678 area code. You're on with Backroom Politics. What's your question? Well, I, I, I have many, but um, my first one was your guest there was talking about an effective Republican agenda. And so my question is, what is an effective Republican agenda? I've been following this stuff for 35, 40 years of my life, and from what I can see, they've been wholly ineffective. I mean, the whole thing is a mess. We're $20 trillion in debt. So what is an effective Republican agenda? Well, thank you for your call. I'm going to put you back on hold so you can listen to the answer. Uh, Let me go with Admiral Ken. I'll start with you. What is the what is an effective Republican agenda? Let's start with Reagan, deregulation, uh, winning the Cold War, um, uh, expanding the, the, uh, the, the capability of the, uh, the military such that when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, uh, we posed a credible force to, to throw him out. Um, uh, Alan, take it from there. I think the caller – is is saying what in, in today's world what would be an effective Republican agenda, um, it, which is a different question I think than what is the president's republic uh, Republican agenda or even the the combined Republican leadership agenda today because uh, there's no there is not agreement and what used to be Republican priorities have been shifted around um, like any kind of financial restraint but. Going in, this president and many of uh, members of the legislature said we need to repeal and replace Obamacare. They couldn't explain exactly why, and of course, as we know, they didn't have a, a, a real replacement, uh, which suggests that two things. One, they didn't have an agreement, and two, they didn't really expect to have to come up with a replacement because they didn't expect to win, and we know how that one has played out. Um, that doesn't mean we're done with reforming and modifying uh, the, the American health care system, um, but an important and the first big item on the agenda was that. That failed. The next item up is is tax reform. Here again, it's almost like an act of faith that we need to provide middle-class tax cuts, and if we can lower no. the corporate rate and remove and 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 remove some of the the, uh, the the tax benefits. There will be some magical impact on economic growth. But there's no agreement among Republicans at this point on what a tax package should be. Most people would agree, even including a lot of Democrats, that our tax system has become a mess, and it it would it, 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 we could all benefit from <laughs> who's significant reform. That, there's there? no. Oh, Alan, uh, Alan, the, hold on. Alan, hold on. Hold on real yeah. quick. Caller, what was your what was your add-on? Well, I, there's a couple of things in that statement. Number one, um, 
every law that Congress undertakes is a leap of faith, is it not? And I think if we look back, we have historical record proving the failure of our Congress and the fact that every time a problem arises, we think the solution is to pass some new law. Secondly, we have historic evidence in the past from John F. Kennedy forward that reducing the tax burden not only on the middle-class working Americans like myself, and I can assure you what my tax burden is, and it's quite high, but also on those people that actually create and produce jobs in this country by freeing up money for them so that they can create and be more productive and open new jobs is not a leap of faith. We have historical evidence for that. And as far as not giving a reason why we should have replaced Obamacare, Obamacare never should have been passed in the first place. The federal government has proven over 230-plus years that it is an abject failure in managing anything uh, of the scale of public health care. That should be more local control. That used to be the venue or the purview or the calling card of the Republican Party, more local control, lower taxes, more local government where we can hold our officials accountable, and that has not been the actual outcome for criminy since before Reagan. Justin, if and, I may. And caller, caller, we're going to put you on hold so you can hear the answers to that, but this is a great call. Thank you very much for listening. Justin, um, if I may. Yeah, go ahead, Admiral Ken. So first things first, the, the caller asked what would be an effective Republican agenda, and I, I, I misunderstood the question. I, think, I thought he was asking from a historical perspective, but correcting that. So with regard to Obamacare, that was never part of a Republican agenda. And if, you, if, the, if the caller may remember, that, was, that passed without a single or almost zero Republican votes. So that said – uh, a good a good Republican agenda would be one the uh, the repair or, or, uh, or, or I guess not you won't re- it won't repeal Obamacare it's not going away there has never in the history of this country been an entitlement program that's been voted in that's been voted out it's never going to happen but we do need to repair it because it is creating quite a strain on the, on on our budget number two the single greatest threat to our security is not North Korea it is not Iran. The single greatest threat to our security is our debt. A good Republican agenda would take under, under, under uh, attack reduction, real dramatic and serious reduction of our debt. Um, we need to do something about uh, the, the interplay between uh, the federal government and local law enforcement. Um, the, whole point of, the whole point of the Colin Kaepernick uh, knee, uh, taking a knee was to address the fact that there's great in, uh, inequities between what happens when certain groups of people are pulled over and, and, uh, and approached by the police, that's got to be taken under, under control. Tax reform, I think he's already said quite a bit about that, and he's right. The middle class needs, needs a break. Small business, where most of the money in this country uh, and most of the jobs are in this country are generated, uh, need, need a break. And then finally, and then finally uh, the, the, the U.S. military is in a bad state of repair uh, after sequestration. Something's got to get done. That, that right. in effect, would be the gold standard for me. But, but, he, but I, I want to go back to the caller's original point is, you know, that there is no – we've gotten away, I guess. And this goes for both parties, Sharmila. Uh, what could say that the mm. Democrats, too, have gotten away from maintaining and, and, and having a steady uh, 
platform or a steady agenda that works best for their constituency, uh, the Democrats haven't been lighting the world on fire on that angle as well either. I would agree and disagree with that. I would agree with you that on the economic side, um, the de- you're right, the Democrats have, um, I can't think of the phrase, but they've, they've failed. That's what I mean. They failed? <laughs> I would say dropped the ball. They don't have, as I said before, they don't have a compelling economic message. They don't have uh, really. They don't have real solutions on improving the lot of the middle class and the working class and getting wages back up to the place where they used to be. Except for, you know, and improving the quality of jobs that are available. Right? The Democrats make a big meal about increasing the minimum wage, but what a better solution would be creating the creation of more jobs and the education of the workforce to take jobs that pay far above the minimum wage. So I would agree with you there. I would disagree with you, though, that I think the Democrats have, and whether or not this has helped or harmed them is a different matter, but I think the Democrats have put forth a pretty credible social agenda in terms of really being the party that stands for equal rights and equal treatment of all people. And some people might call that cultural warfare. Some people might have different takes on it. But I think it's pretty clear where the Democrats stand on issues of racial justice, on issues of marriage equality, on issues of women's reproductive rights, where I think the Republicans, frankly, are a little more all over the place. Charmla, I hate to say this, but one one could say that the Democrats failed on that because of the fact – I mean, just look at the the typical Democratic voters, your Rust Belt, industrial state, blue-collar, Democrat, working class – uh, even the surprising number of Hispanic and African-American voters that went for Trump that should have gone for Hillary, I would say you guys have failed in that aspect, too. I would disagree. I think that other than white women, a majority of women voted for Hillary and, and vote for Democrats. So <laughs> Other than white women, that's just yeah, which, which a, sm- me to say, a, small, a small little subgroup, right? I would dispute your characterization that the typical Democratic voter is the, as you described, the Midwestern Rust Belt working class person. I mean, yes, these are historical Democratic voters, but I don't know that you can count them as the typical, like the modern typical Democratic voter. I well, think anyway, the, we've gone much more firmly moved into the swing category. No, 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 I agree with you. I agree with you on that one, Charm. Caller, again, thank you very much for the call. Hope you keep listening. Uh, we're going to take a break. We've gone way over. Uh, I want to thank the caller. That was actually a nice, intelligent call. That was great. Uh, when we come back, yeah. though, we've got, we've got another war front to talk about. And that is Steve Bannon's war on the White House and the Republican Party. We're going to talk about that when we come back. It is it is basically political deathmatch this week on Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in three minutes.
live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're before you pivot, week, this, before yes. you pivot, yes. can I just go ahead. Go, go ahead. throw Alan in a couple Moore. of final thoughts? So the, the, the caller was suggesting that, that there was uh, some broad sense of, of feeling about replacing Obamacare because the federal government is never able to do anything. Um, I have a lot of sympathy for for the sentiment. What the point I made, the point I was trying to make, was that the Republicans never made a compelling case about what was wrong with Obamacare and how the Republican plan was going to fix it. Obamacare opened up insurance access to a lot of people who were shut out of the system. That became the pol- the, the overwhelming political story and the political dynamic. It made it so extremely difficult for Republicans who thought we overreached with Obamacare uh, to to get behind a particular plan. And the situation varied all over the country, state by state and so on. But as far as the federal government's involvement, like it or not, the federal government is far and away, light years away of being the biggest player in health. Medicare, Medicaid, Veterans Administration – Tax treatment of employer uh, health-related health benefits, it's the monster. And, and what Obamacare did was, ex- was, was basically expanded that to provide some right. additional coverage. I didn't like the way they did it. I didn't like the fact that it, that it wasn't bipartisan, and I think there were opportunities lost. 
But the, in order to make a change, you've got to make a compelling and case by, for what the actual problems are, and they never right. did that. And by the way, I never even mentioned the fact that uh, universal health care was at one time a big point on the Republican platform. I go back to the 1972 State of the Union address where Richard Nixon made it part of his political and legislative agenda in cooperation with one Senator Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts. We don't bring that up. But anyway, let's move on. I, I want to move on real quick. Because uh, I'm fascinated by this new Steve Bannon move. For those of you who don't know, Steve Bannon, who was uh, principal advisor to President Donald Trump in the White House for about uh, the first half of a college football game, he has <laughs> since left the White House and has now become either the president's biggest fan or the one person who's going to take down the Republican Party as we know it, it could go either way. So over the weekend, Steve ba- or late last week over the weekend, Steve Bannon came out and said, you know what, he is targeting uh, certain Republican Senate incumbents, and he's going to primary them to make sure that the people who are in the Senate will stand up and be right there for Donald Trump's political agenda, and not, as he puts it, the weaklings who refuse to get on board, they need to go away. And this includes, might I add, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So, that being said, uh, I want to start off, Alan Moore, you know, first of all, he is targeting some long-standing old-school politicians and he's doing it with money from a reclusive technology guru named Robert Mercer. Does Steve Bannon really think that him with that Bannon with Mercer money is going to be able to take out people like Orrin Hatch, who is not only beloved in the Senate, but for in, in most cases? but has a monetary support network in the Republican Party that would kill most other Senate uh, races. How does, how does Bannon think he can do it? He, he played a very important role in helping Donald Trump get elected. And uh, he thinks he understands the president. He thinks he understands uh, uh, the constituency that not only elected uh, Donald Trump, but, but continues to pro- provide solid support. He sees a lot of weaknesses among uh, on the Democratic Party. He sees a divide over there, not unlike the one that that uh, you have on the Republican Party, which is why I talk about sometimes the four uh, uh, the four uh, uh, political parties we now have in America: the two Democrat and the two Republican. Um, he he knows how to maneuver and manipulate and cajole and stroke uh, uh, the president. What he doesn't do, though, is is know exactly what the president is thinking, because this president is not a long term strategic thinker um, who's given all of these matters an enormous amount of time, attention and detailed thought the way I think Bannon has, whatever one thinks of the man or 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 his views. Um, What 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 he (laughs) 
these two guys came together in, uh, oddly, and and uh, Bannon I think was very helpful to to help getting getting uh, president elected and taking advantage of the of the weaknesses of, on the Democratic side and the mistakes made uh, by by their candidate. Um, what I don't know though, because I don't a I, I think they're very very different guys. Um, I think Bannon still thinks he can maneuver and manipulate and control the president. Good luck with that, I say. Um, but but taking on the whole establishment, wow, that that's uh, that's a, a a big ask. I haven't seen an a, an ask uh, that large uh, since uh, Bernie Sanders tried to take over a, a non-Democrat <laughs> tried to take over the Democratic Party. And wipe sure. out uh, anybody who wants to show any moderation or balance. Um, I mean, Sharma, and, is, and uh, I don't know what will happen. Sharma, is this an instance where, again, does Steve Bannon truly believe the populism running through the country is strong enough to make this successful? Or is this just false bravado and a false sense of, dare I say, importance? Well, thankfully, I'm not friends with Steve Bannon, so I can't tell you directly. But I think it's the combination of both. And I think that, to, to Alan's point, where I think he was right, Steve Bannon did have the capacity to cajole and to persuade Donald Trump during the election. They have a very different relationship now. I think Trump, now that he is president, and now that Steve Bannon has really, you know, right after his election and, you know, until his sacking, as strategic advisor, got a lot more media attention, and now Trump is very sensitive to the perception that he is being manipulated by Bannon, right? The combination of the mainstream news and Saturday Night Live got to him a little bit. So I think that there's limited, I think Steve Bannon has a much more limited influence on him now, but then again, apparently they still talk on the phone quite frequently, so maybe I'm wrong. April Ken, oh, go. I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say to answer your original question, I think I think Steve Bannon did have a pulse on the populist elements of this country. That you're right. Um, that you know that many people, including the Democrats, underestimated previously. And I think that while people, I think this could actually be something the Democrats should be quite afraid of, because while people who are Trump supporters and that er- that support has eroded slowly. It's eroded not because they disagree with his message anymore or they disagree with his policy goals. It's because they have seen the reality of the president and they realize that he doesn't have the temperament or the ability to get to, to come through on those promises. They still very much believe in that agenda. And so I think the fact that Steve Bannon is really touting senators and congressmen who also agree with that agenda and could, t- could threaten to overwhelm the moderate Republican caucus and certainly overwhelm the Democrats, that is something that I think is credible and that the Democrats and moderate Republicans should be very worried about because if Steve Bannon does get his way, then the Trump agenda could actually be enacted despite the president's petulant behavior. Admiral Ken, you know, one of the names that we've heard uh, floating around is that uh, Steve Bannon is actively trying to recruit uh, Eric Prince, who is the founder of Blackwater or Z or now Blackwater, 
and the brother of uh, Betsy DeVos to run against uh, a, 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 long, a, a, a solid Republican senator in, uh, in John Barrasso uh, in, uh, in Wyoming. I mean, we've, we've seen what Bannon and the quality of political candidate that Bannon's bringing to the table. I give you Judge Roy Moore. Should that scare us that this could possibly work? We saw it work in Alabama. Is this something that could work in 18 other states, do you think, Admiral Ken? Admiral Ken? I think we lost Admiral Ken. I will go back to uh, – oh, no, no. I'll take that question. I see what's happening. Wait a minute. Admiral Ken, what happened? Ken? No, we still lost him. Alan Moore, I'll go to you for that answer. Yeah, so I, I can't imagine it happening, okay? But it, but but we don't know what's possible now. The the, the Roy Moore thing was was uh, not insignificant, but I don't think it's a guide to what what's possible or what can be done. Um, you know, we had the unusual case of an appointed senator for a short period of time who didn't have the ideological uh, roots um, with uh, with the Trump supporters that um, that a Roy Moore does. The controversial um, uh, uh, twice uh, um, removed from uh, Supreme Court uh, office um, in the state, um, which makes him a hero to some. And the issue. Uh, the, the issues he was involved in uh, the Ten Commandments uh, uh, in 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 the courthouse uh, kinds of issues um, resonates with uh, with a with a certain group of people, and you show up in primaries, and you got a not very uh, interesting uh, uh, main guy. The president uh, does support him. The sitting the sitting, albeit uh, appointed senator Luther Strange, and. Uh, Trump's not all in, but he's in. Um, and uh, but by then, I think the handwriting was on the wall that that Moore was probably uh, uh, just more popular, partly because he would just give his finger, give give the finger to to uh, to the establishment, both in uh, uh, in in Alabama, where necessary, and certainly in Washington. I mean, it's just bizarre that you've got a guy down there. He's probably never met Mitch McConnell, who's up there saying that one of his priorities is to get rid of Mitch McConnell. Well, maybe Mitch McConnell will will not be elected leader. He has to be elected every two years. He's a very popular leader in a very tough job. Most of the people in the Senate don't want they don't want that job. They But Alan, they, let, me, it, let me ask you this question. It, it, let, me just, let me just jump in and ask this question. This has got to make uh Ronna Romney McDaniel, the chairwoman of the RNC, this has got to make her nuts. Well, um, it's sort of, you know, they'll say, let's, let's, <laughs> we, we don't know, we, we have to deal with whatever shows up, right? And if that's what uh, Bannon's going to do, he's going to talk, he's going to get, get some coverage. Um, he's, he's got uh, one deep pocket behind him. He's also, uh, he lost, uh, uh, been, been losing financial base at Breitbart, 
um, which is a whole other really interesting issue, the uh, the social movement to to go to to companies that happen to be just group buying uh, advertising time and show up on Breitbart. Uh, there's a particular website going after those companies saying, why are you advertising on Breitbart? We may have to make a big issue of that. And you've got a whole bunch of companies saying, I didn't know that I was because uh, it's all automated uh, advertising. But Bannon, yes, has got this the Mercer family money. He doesn't have another big deep pocket. Um, he's got uh, he's got a uh, a platform at Breitbart. Uh, he's he's got some other money from someplace. I just don't know. I think he's biting off more than 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 he can chew. Now, in his case, he'll say, "Well, I'll go after eight, as many as eighteen people." And then maybe he'll win two and claim credit for it. It, it you know, people will adjust uh, what they say their objectives were depending on the outcomes. I don't feel comfortable about it. If I were working for the the Republican senatorial campaign for the RNC, uh, I would be very uncomfortable about all of this. I would probably be trying to persuade the president to see if he couldn't um, rein in Bannon to some degree. But that's a that's probably a fool's errand. Um, it's just more noise, more confusion that is likely to contribute to the deadlock that we've got in the country and in our politics, um, even even as the economy continues to sort of sing along. And uh, uh, I have no idea what he's capable of. Charles, we, we mentioned some names. So you have on one side of the Republican fight and Steve Bannon, who swears up and down that he can get people elected. I mean, we saw what he did in Alabama. That should get eyes wide open down at RNC headquarters. But Bannon, who has money himself, but nowhere near the money it would take to do this, and uh, obviously the Mercer family, led by Robert Mercer, does he really think that Mercer and Bannon and populism can beat the agenda and the political operation of people like the Koch brothers, uh, Sheldon Adelson, uh, Paul Singer, uh, Woody Johnson, you know Ken Langone? These are big money, traditional Republican donors. What makes Bannon think that he can pull this off unless this is completely self-serving and self-aggrandizing? Well, I think the fact that those guys have not have barely made a peep since Donald Trump was elected. They all voiced their opposition to him. They withheld funding, and yet here we are with President Trump. I, I don't know the inner workings of that organization, but I would presume that they put quite a bit of money behind Luther Strange, and yet here we are with Roy Moore. I think that if I was Steve Bannon, I would feel a little cocky myself at this point because the fact is that his two, the two t- candidates he's touted the most have been victorious. And so I think that perhaps, and I, I think part of it is also malaise or maybe indifference on the part of, on the part of those mega donors that you just mentioned that you know they think that their personal interests, their personal agendas are secured by the establishment Republicans in town, but you've, they have not been vocal. They have not been active. They have not been advance, advancing their own separate agenda, nor advancing their own separate candidates. So 
until they really become more vocal, until they throw their hats back in the ring, I don't really see what he has to be threatened by. Admiral Ken, are you with us again? Admiral Ken, no, apparently not. I'll go to uh, Alan Moore then. Alan, is is Roy Moore literally the liquid courage tequila shot that Steve Bannon needs to think that he, if he can do it in Alabama, he can do it nationwide? No, if Donald, Donald Trump is that. Donald Trump, is he really? If, if you can get a president elected with all the negatives associated with him and all the challenges um, it takes to succeed in a presidential election, um, you think you can do almost anything. Now, what he thought he could do inside the White House is make this dramatic um, uh, revolutionary change. Well, it turned out that didn't work out like, like, as he had hoped. Um, uh, he's not a team guy, um, and uh, at least not when it comes to running the government. And I'm guessing he didn't have the, the, the staying power to sit in long, boring uh, meetings on policy, on budget, on staff. Um, he wanted to just drop in and, and, and utilize his knowledge of what, what, uh, what the president tended to listen to. And President Trump got elected. If you are part of that and play a major senior role in that, oh my God, how empowering must that be but to is that, is that uh, is somebody that in the in the, in the Alan, political world? And Alan, is that false bravado? Is I mean, is that a false sense that, of security? I don't think. Well, it doesn't mean he can win anywhere, but it's sort of like in the, in the song New York. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. If you can get your guy elected president, you can get, you know, you can you can knock off some sitting senators for God's sakes. How hard must must that be? We got our guy elected president of the United States. So, um he's not going to win 18, but if he win if he knocks off one or two or three, I mean that's been happening without Steve Bannon. Um, you know, the Tea Party uh, movement was able to knock off a couple of guys. Of course, it also it knocked them off, but it got Democrats elected in, in, in several famous cases. Um, right. Got rid of the incumbent and, and opened the door for a Democrat. Um, and that's, of course, what the, the, the Republican um, – I don't like to use the word establishment because that, that, that has this – negative connotation of country club and big money. I mean, is the Republican establishment? How about the Republican party infrastructure or the Republican party leadership? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's the Republic, the responsible Republican party that's trying to get things done. That's drawn to, to public service because they would like to legislate and operate uh, modified laws execute and and and, and watch the, the country improve and sure if there's some <laughs> a little gravy in it for them um, in uh, in 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 power in prestige um, and and uh, in, in in a little bit of money and these guys don't get rich doing this stuff contrary to 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 public right. opinion right um, but but they they uh, they're sitting there thinking. How would we function? First of all, they may come up with, they may be able to knock off a couple of incumbents. It doesn't mean that their chosen candidate will prevail. So we may end up losing 
from R to D, from Republican to Democrat, a couple of seats. And we may end up with a couple of Roy Moores who are just true who, bomb throwers who don't understand how Washington works, don't particularly want to have this, this sort of arrogant view. I know enough. Right. I know right. it stinks. I know it's a swamp. I know it's run by money, old money. Um, and uh, I'm going to go up there and do my best to shake it up and clean it out. Well, some of us give, don't think that's the way to run a country. I want to give uh, Admiral Ken one more shot. Sounds like he's back with us. Admiral Ken, are you with us? Yes, I am. I apologize. I am uh, the victim of the lack of, of, of free trade practices among cable providers in Alexander, Virginia. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, Admiral Ken, you know, when we see Judge Roy Moore, courtesy of your home state, uh, and we and we see – uh, you know him actively going with somebody like a a price uh, up in Wyoming, going against uh, Senator Barrasso. Should this be the wake up call? Should should Chairwoman uh, Romney be literally knocking on the Koch brothers and Sidney Adelson's door, saying, "Hey, wake up! We're going to lose this if we're not careful." Yeah, I, I think so. Um, there, there are a couple of uh, Mercer guys on uh, on one of the morning shows this morning, and they they ranted um, about the fact that the problem with the uh, the Republicans uh, that are that uh, that are part of the infrastructure and leadership, as you described them a few seconds ago, is that they are too willing to compromise. That they should not be compromising at anything. And and, and it, it dawned on me these guys haven't. If these guys have read the Constitution, they 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 didn't understand what 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 the words were saying on the page. That the that the if you look at the system, at the bicameral system, it's designed to function by compromise. That you can't. It's not designed for one party to to own it all the time, um, and get anything meaningful done. So the Koch brothers, you know, who were you know big uh, never Trumpers, and as well as a bunch of others. Um, you know, they, 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 I don't believe that they're asleep at the switch, but uh, they've been slow to show that they're that they're not a, that they're not asleep, and they need to get get uh, get engaged because, uh, quite frankly, guys like Bannon, uh, who are demanding that uh, Bob Corker resign, doesn't understand. Even though Bannon was a former naval officer and, and took the same oath that I did doesn't understand that, that, that when you become a U.S. senator or U.S. congressman or any member of the cabinet, uh, including becoming president of the United States, you don't take an oath to the president. You take an oath to the country and to the people. Right. And right. this guy, this guy's missed, missed the boat on that. I was going to add something to what uh, Ken said, uh, which started out to me when he was talking about the Koch brothers. I think the other thing that Steve Bannon has on his favor has on his side that other, these other mega donors don't is the fact that he has direct support of voters. You know, like it or not, and you can disagree with me, but it does seem that when Steve Bannon talks directly to voters, voters, especially you know working class voters, and a lot of these people who swung from Bernie to Trump or President Obama to Trump, really feel like Bannon is on their side and Bannon has their interests at heart. I don't think any sort of working class Rust Belt American or Southern American would say, oh, yeah, David and Charles Koch, they're definitely on my side. They're for the little guy. 
right? That's the reasons they hid sort of their contributions to the political system through so many shadow packs and shadow organizations. And so I think that in this in this era of unprecedented transparency and era of where the voter finally feels like they have some power back, I think that's that's going to be a really important force going forward. And if if those mega donors don't adapt to that, it's going to be their loss. And, and Charlie, I want to stay with you because right now, you know, if we if we look at the list that they're going after, I mean, he's going after some some very uh, center right, some very moderate, some very practical Republicans, uh, particularly in people like Flake Heller, uh, even Capito out of West Virginia. Uh, Bannon's got these has got targets on these races as well as longstanding. Uh, long-standing old-school compromise to get the country moving, senators like Warren Hatch. To me, this sounds like an opportune time for the Democratic Party to come up with their own moderate, just slightly left-of-center candidates to beat out the Bannon field. Can the can the Democratic Party get that organized and take a centrist? approach to compromise and get those seats if Bannon candidates go up? Well, first, first I'd respond to that. Wasn't her name Hillary Clinton? No. But, no. But, no. No. Nice try. Um, nice, I mean, nice plug for it's, the old It's interesting, boss. right? No. Because to a lot of my more left-leaning friends, that's exactly who she was. But I th- so – I think looking at Doug Jones in Alabama will be a really interesting exercise in that, right? Because Doug Jones is sort of walking this interesting tightrope where, yes, he's a Democrat, yes, he's a civil rights litigator, but he understands that he's in Alabama and he understands that picking a fight over these kind of culture wars and respecting the place that he's from, you know, whatever that means to you, is going to be essential to him winning and to straddling that divide between – between more moderate Republicans and the more liberal wing of the party. So, yes, ideally, the Democrats could field a bunch of left-of-center candidates, but at the the same time, there's only so so right you can go without stopping being a Democrat. At its core, Democratic voters have certain values that they want their candidate to to embody, just like Republicans do and just like far-right Republicans do. I think Alan's point that there really aren't two parties in our country anymore, there's four parties, is spot on, right? Because any more left-leaning, or sorry, more right-leaning Democrat can't necessarily anymore rely on the support of really progressive, really progressive voters. Um, and, and there's no guarantee that even more moderate Republicans will really cross over because on some issues, you've got to be one way or the other. You've got to be sort of pro-life or pro-choice. You've got to be... Um, you know, kind of pro gu- pro gun restrictions or more or less in favor of regulation. There there are some issues that are you can't necessarily take a more nuanced view. And and with you know sort of media headlines working the way they do, I think that that's going to be a really hard um, hard act to balance. Yeah, well, I I hear you, uh, Alan Moore. Does is, is this the pinnacle for Steve Bannon, or is there a lot more that needs to be seen? There's a lot more this guy is capable of. I pray it is the pinnacle. I pray that it's past the pinnacle, but I don't know. 
Okay. Fair enough. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk about uh, – we're going to take a long shot towards the end of the show. We've got 45 minutes left. We're going to talk about two things. One, the, uh, the immigration initiative put out by the president yesterday and today, as well as the abrupt, impromptu, yet planned departure of the vice president from the Indianapolis Colts game yesterday in Indianapolis. We're going to talk about that and the continued fight – between the White House and the NFL. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back here live on Blog Talk Radio. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Blog Talk Radio's Backroom Politics. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me as they are every Tuesday is Alan Moore, Admiral Ken Carradine, Sharmila Achari in New York. And we continue our discussion as we talk about a couple of items that have popped up on the screen. Let, let, let's start first with uh, Vice President Pence and the continuing fight between the White House and the NFL. Uh, for those who have not seen the video, uh, Vice President Mike Pence went back to the old home grounds and decided to take in a football game uh, there in Indianapolis where the Indianapolis Colts uh, were playing the San Francisco 49ers. And as they were sitting in the owner's booth there pregame, several players from the 49ers took a knee, and at which time Vice President Pence and his wife and entourage abruptly left the owner's suite, got into a car, and flew back to the West Coast. Uh, many people now are saying that this was not only a amateurish, an amateurish political stunt, which from all indications it was, but it was tacky and it cost the taxpayers just unnecessarily silly amounts of private travel for vice president. Uh, so we... we I go to uh, Admiral Ken. Admiral Ken, first of all, let's talk about the optics of this. Um, the the vice president gets to the stadium, and he has his pool reporters with him. Pence's press boss goes, don't bother getting out of the car. He's not going to be here long. With the understanding that he was going to go watch an entire game, which is worse? The fact that he walked out on Americans using their First Amendment rights to to protest, or was it the fact that he basically staged a political photo op that flopped on its appearance? Well, so suffice it to say that um, we we had the big uh, weekly Sunday dinner family Sunday dinner here last night, and we got to discuss this at length. And I'm probably the, I was probably the minority in the room that um, while I would not, I would not protest by taking a knee uh, at the America, at the, uh, the, the, uh, the anthem national anthem. Uh, I don't, I am not, um, I am not offended vehemently by those who choose to do so, because again, uh, I, I've, Taken the oath to de- to protect and defend the Constitution, and not just parts of it, but the whole the whole enchilada, if you will. Um, so, um, what's worse? Um, I think for me, what's worse is the fact that the Vice President of the United States um, doesn't seem to understand that uh, while he may not be okay with how people choose to. Um, protest, um, he is taking the same oath to protect and defend the Constitution, all of it, the whole enchilada. And to do so, I think really, really, it's it's kind of disrespectful. Um, you know, and I think the, the, the fact that given this White House 
seems to be so attuned to uh, the the daily or even the hourly news cycle. Um, they seem to have a, a they seem to be tone deaf uh, when it comes to being able to play out events like this before before they happen. No doubt in my mind, this was a planned stunt. Um, I think the press, uh, the president's press secretary, saying, "Don't worry, he's not going to be here very long." Lends great credence to that. But you know what's sad is these guys can't even get their lie straight. This is awful. This is ridiculous. I mean, make 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 it make it somewhat believable. But uh, it, you know, I, and I I lost. I mean, I, I you know here here up until now, I haven't had a, a whole lot of really. Uh, crit- critical things to say about Vice President Pence. I think, in some regards, I've kind of put him in the same category as General Kelly and and a few other members of the president's cabinet. Like going, wow, this is going to be a real tough uh, job for you guys to do for the next three or four years. But uh, I, I I can tell you, he lost he lost a little stock with me yesterday over the weekend. That is, and um, and I'm I'm kind of hoping that uh, we don't see a continuation of that and other things. Charlotte, it, it, it surprises me that I, I would have thought that the Democrats would have taken out a lot more press time to go after the vice president for doing what he did in such a ham-handed way. I think the Democrats honestly have bigger fish to fry. Yes, you know, and the media, for its part, has done a, a bang-up job of taking – Pence to task. And I was, I was going to add to your earlier question to Admiral Ken, uh, how about it just being more offensive that the vice president, you know, spent $250,000 to, for the sole purpose, even if he hadn't walked out, he was spending that money for the sole purpose of attending a football game. Yeah, but I, I would have um, thought, I thought but, Charlie, that, but, that the Democrats would have at least gone ballistic on the whole package. Well, I think that, I think they have in tying it to the tying it to the Tom Price scandal and tying it to uh, you know other examples of you know the Trump administration's hypocrisy of promising to drain the swamp but then taking full advantage of t- taking full advantages of all the perks of their offices. So I, I don't think they've completely dropped the ball on that. But I again, when you consider everything the President of the United States himself is doing, this really seems like small potatoes. Uh, uh, well, uh, Alan Moore, is this really what? small? Po- Alan Moore, is this really small potatoes? Well, financially, so uh, you know, I, 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 I guess Sharmila thinks that the vice president should stay in in Washington D.C. and shouldn't travel on Air Force Two, which is a dedicated airplane that the Air Force operates. Um, but that part doesn't offend no, I didn't me say that, Alan. In, in anywhere near the way it offends me. What cabinet members were doing. Here's what offends me, though. That this was all, as Ken was saying, a planned manipulation. People can feel however they choose to feel about kneeling, um, standing with arms linked, um, uh, and 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 the and the different modifications. The teams can decide if they want to sanction uh, players or not. The league is apparently considering passing a rule. Which would which would guarantee there would be some kind of penalty, some sanction, some fine, some something. Fine. Um, they're private companies. They they can do that. I'm I wouldn't. I'm I'm just exactly where Ken is on this. I wouldn't do it the way they're doing it, but I understand why, and I respect the fact that they're willing to 
to expose themselves uh, to some level of anger and ridicule because they feel so passionately and God knows they have plenty of reason to. Um, and, and they're not there representing their rich selves as, as some people are. They're there representing the people who aren't rich, who are the true victims of the kind of racial injustice that, that this whole exercise symbolizes. So, so I have a lot of sympathy for, for them. I'm going to still watch the games. The thing that offended me about what the vice president did was he knew what he was going to do. He wasn't going to the game to because he's been a lifetime fan and they were going to honor um, Peyton Manning at the game. Yeah, they honored Peyton Manning at the outset, but that was lost with the, the whole narrative. So all he did was stomp all over the Peyton Manning that he says he was there to, to honor and respect. And he, and, and, and here's where the money is relevant on this particular trip. It wasn't a, a trip to go honor Peyton Manning, see this game, keep, stay on the plane, keep moving, and, and put everybody at that game through the heightened level of security that you go through when the president or the vice president is in attendance. That's where the inconvenience is. That's where the bigger money is, uh, likely is. So it didn't bother me if he's going to go there to a game and be around the country. It bothered me that it was a phony trip, 100% phony trip. They knew that the San Francisco 49ers were going to take a knee. They've been taking a knee for six months, eight months. They were going to take a knee. So they knew that he was going to get up and walk out. That's what offends me. And, and it made it, they were trying to make it look like he did it on purpose, that he did it in response. That is garbage. He went knowing that would happen. I find that very offensive. It, 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 Justin, it should, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Charmel. Can I jump in with an unsubstantiated conspiracy theory? Uh, no, we don't do that on this show, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I'm curious, right? So it seems like all of us are in consensus that this was a bit of a bonehead move and, you know, a, a staged political stunt. And the other thing that's surprising about it is that Mike Pence doesn't normally do that. Mike Pence is a very smart operator. And so one could, one could think, okay, he probably knew that this was going to play out quite badly with the media. So then why did he do it? Again, you because, know, as Bob Corker said, Mike Pence, it might have been a I'll, message I'll tell you why. to an audience I'll, I'll of tell you one. Why. No, I'll tell you why. It was. It was. It was it was it was it was done at the request and it was done by an individual who is ungodly loyal to his president. Mike Pence Mike Pence right now, if he really wanted to really make waves and make life difficult and become president in the next 18 months could do so if he was that kind of guy. He's not. Uh, but that's interesting, I, Justin. I, I don't think that the president has had any reason to question Mike Pence's loyalty. You're right. Mike Pence has been incredibly loyal to the president. And so it just seems very strange that he needed to, again, make this over-the-top gesture of loyalty that was costly to him politically. So far, he's been I, very yeah. he's been very shrewd about maintaining loyalty to the president I mean, while maintaining his own political credibility. And so, I mean, Charmel, here's for the unsubstantiated conspiracy theory, maybe there's some trouble in that relationship that people are not yet privy to, or maybe 
Pence thinks that there might be trouble, and he's trying to stave that off by this over-the-top gesture. Sharon, let's be clear about one thing. The second he agreed to take the vice president's job, Mike Pence became politically damaged. Let's just be clear about that. Uh, he has done himself no favor. Oh, that's favors. nonsense. That is nonsense. Oh, come on. Why is that nonsense? No, that I agree you, with that. You thought he should just finish out his term as governor and then go off and do something? I mean, if you get a chance to be vice president, if you get a chance to be one you're going to take a job for a guy that no one knows yeah, all that well, know, and many uh, of us I, are hopeful that he might turn into a that that, that he might turn into a uh, a student of the presidency, and it turns out that that didn't work out. He has hurt himself now. Don't get me wrong, but 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 I certainly don't have a quarrel. I, I wish it, that John Kasich had been the guy, and then we then it would be really interesting. Um, but but I, I don't think he I don't I don't think he automatically uh, harmed himself, and I also don't think that being disloyal to the president, if you're a vice president, is the right thing that we want in a in a in a vice president. Um, no, and, and I if agree. You wanna, and if you want to be pushed off to the side, start crossing the president, start calling him a moron, start doing whatever, um, uh, and and you will you will find yourself. Uh, so isolated and your West Wing office will suddenly disappear and you will be sent to funerals the way we used to, uh, to, to, to deal with vice presidents. Um, so, so I just wish in this particular instance, when the president apparently just a day or two ahead said, Hey, by the way, if anybody kneels, I want you out of there. What the, what the vice president should have figured out with him and his people was, Oh my God, that's what's going to happen. I don't want to do that to the people of Indiana who are at that game. I don't want to overshadow my friend Peyton Manning. I'm just going to not go, and then I'm not going to create an incident. That's, that was his mistake in my judgment. Yeah. Um, once he got the order, if you will, that the president has made clear and tweeted out, yep, that's what I told him. That's what he did. Um, uh, and, that's and, what and, I like my vice president. But that, well, Justin, also, I, I kind of want to push back it. on your earlier point, uh, you know, uh, agreeing with Alan, but from a different angle, that, you know, for all of the drama that President Trump has created throughout his tenure, Mike Pence has done a pretty remarkable job of not being tainted by it, right? You know, other than kind of issuing general statements of, oh, I support the president, he, you know, he's not associated with Charlottesville. He's not associated with this, with the health care disaster, maybe to D.C. insiders. He might be, but to the average voter, I mean, no Democrat's going to pick up and vote for Mike Pence, but I think to the average Republican voter on both sides of the spectrum, he's retained a lot of political credibility, and I think maybe even gained a little bit from the fact that he's been he's managed to be a steady rock in the sea of all this chaos. I, I would I, I normally would agree with that, Charmola. The only thing I, I, I want to push back on is the fact that it is a constant that he and 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 this and this. This incident with the leaving the Indianapolis game uh, on Sunday, that to me took away the political credibility that he needed. I, the, the stench associated with being a part of this administration is so strong, and it, and it's be and, and 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 here's my problem with it is that stench is covering a lot of very very good and talented people that could do great things for this country. And I include in that General Kelly, General Mattis, uh, Secretary of State Tillerson, 
uh, National Security Advisor McMaster. There are a lot of people that are being buried under this 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 ilk. That and, and and I will include Mike Pence in this. Mike Pence in this instance, especially after the president said, "Yep, I, he did exactly what I told him to." The only thing worse that President Trump could have done would have held up a dog biscuit and said, "Here, boy, here, boy, go get the flag, go get the flag." That's the problem I have, and I think Mike Pence should have been the voice of reason and said, "Mr. President, this is going to backfire," which it did. That's my only take. Anyway, agree with me or not, that's that's my stance. Uh, let's talk a little bit about immigration. Um, for those who don't know, the president came out with some really tough and aggressive immigration reform suggestions, and by suggestions I mean policies uh, <laughs> that he, he is he is putting out uh, to help secure America in his eyes. The big arguing point right now is the issue regarding DACA or the, um, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Uh, basically, it defers any deportation or any legal action against children who were brought here as children with their parents illegally. Uh, it gives, it's also known as, as, as the Dreamer Protocol. Uh, it is, it, it, it's a good program, but yet the Trump administration has saw fit to rescind the uh, the program in its entirety, uh, they had until Friday. Dreamers had until last Friday to get registered and continue their two-year program. After this registration period, it ends. There is no more DACA registration. So I want to start with you, uh, Sharmila. One would think, particularly with the fact that you have some very key Hispanic voters, I mean, some key Hispanic legislators that you would want to try and win over in this. I give you Marco Rubio. I give you uh, Henry Curbelo. I give you Ileana ross Layton, And that's just from Florida. We haven't even touched any Hispanic uh, Republicans coming out of Texas, New York, California, Nevada. We haven't even talked about them. Why would you do and rescind a popular bipartisan mantra only for a populism promise kept? Why would you do that? I'm not sure if I understand your question, Justin. Are you asking me why he would rescind, why he made the action, you know, a month or two ago in the first place to rescind DACA? Yeah, why would he rescind DACA when he's got bipartisan support and support from some very prominent Hispanic legislators in his own party? Because he thinks that that's what it takes to show that he's tough on immigration, and I think that that's what he thought his base wanted. And would then he realized, you know, right? I mean, I think we've seen many, many examples where the president jumps first without without thinking about the consequences, and then. When he when he announced the repeal and when the subsequent backlash occurred, he suddenly backtracked and said, "Oh, actually, wait, no, I really do care about these dreamers, and you know, we're going to do something. We're going to do something to um, to protect them, right? It's it's that sort of classic bait and switch, or the classic, you know, person who does something bad to you and then comes in and rescue and tries to rescue you, and he's trying to position himself as oh." I'm the man who, who extended compassion to the dreamers when it's like, well, no, you're the one who took the compassion away in the first place. 
So it's like if someone, you know, slashes your tire and then obviously then offers to help you change it. Uh, Alan Moore, so, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, Alan Moore, does it make sense for the president to appease the populist side with, despite taking out a large part of a new voting bloc that he's got to capture if he wants to get reelected in 2020? <laughs> we, we keep trying to, you know, we keep trying to apply logic. Um, true. To, true. To a, a guy who who writes his own rules, he's not a student of uh, uh, of the process of policy. Of uh, he uh, he operates from the gut. He famously gets impatient when he has to uh, a sit in a meeting and 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 learn about stuff, and then he says things like. Who knew healthcare was so was so complicated, um, and and uh, uh, it's a whole different set of uh, behaviors that don't fit any mold that we've ever seen, and it's extremely risky, um, and uh, and frustrating and unproductive, um, and we kind of walk down the road holding our fingers, crossing our fingers that that nothing really bad happens. And, and uh, uh, even as those of us who've been around a long time wonder uh, how anything uh, usefully good is going to happen um, because there are problems in this country that really do some need, need some attention. Um, and they're not getting, uh, they're, they're, they're not getting very much because we're so constantly uh, preoccupied with these sideshows. Admiral Ken? Well, um, the thing that I, I guess uh, I, I, I take away from this is that if um, the, the Republicans um, that, are, that are in Congress and that are in the Senate um, are, are paying attention, they, they saw, one, the president do a you know, full-body embrace of Chuck Schumer in the White House as he threw them under the bus – and left uh, and and watched and watched um, those guys uh, Schumer and Nancy Pelosi virtually dance out of the White House uh, until last week when he basically yanked the the rug out from underneath them too. You know, if if they're thinking that that the president's going to be beside them when they do any kind of uh, approval of any kind of a controversial piece of legislation um, like the the GOP did for trying to repeal and replace Obamacare and think the president's going to stand by them longer than five minutes if it's not in his best interest to do so at that moment. They're crazy. And, you know, we, we talked in earlier in the show about this, 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 this um, um, sub, subsurface war going on between the, the Republican um, leadership and the president. I think if as more events like this take place, the ability for the Congress to work with the president to get anything done is going to be uh, seriously damaged. Now, if if there were sufficient leadership, good leadership um, on the side of the Democrats and on the side of the Republicans, they could really do some interesting things despite what the president wants to do. They could override vetoes with really good legislation. 
The challenge here is that I don't think that that leadership, that, that willingness to come together and put America first is there right now. And um, when you got guys like Bannon and, you know, and the president with their microphones, I think the propensity for them showing up anytime soon are slim to none. But um, I think that anybody that thinks the president's got their back, Democrat or, or Republican, they're crazy. They're nuts. They're, 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 it's, 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 a foul, it's a false. It's a false sense of security and reality. Alan Moore is 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 the fact that we're still seeing the president uh, kick the dead horse that is the border wall. Does that just show that this whole legislative agenda on immigration is just a desperate grasp to get the populist promise kept? Checked box. Well, he he thought he did such a great thing when he cut this sort of side deal with with Pelosi and uh, and Schumer in a meeting, during a meeting with uh, with the Republican leadership and the Democratic leadership, and he was so proud of himself because a bunch a bunch of folks the next day, Democrats said, "Yeah, now that's more like it. Get out there and do bipartisan deals." Um, and and uh, and all the Republicans said, we, I mean, said quietly, we don't mind bipartisan deals, but if you're going to cut one, we'd like to be cut in on it ahead of time and not just be and have us be embarrassed. Well, um, uh, when over time um, people started taking shots at him, I mean, he got a 24, 48-hour new positive news cycle, which which is enormously gratifying to him, as we know. Uh, but then people began to say, you know, this isn't the way to work. And what, what did he get? And what happened to the, to the immigration-related issues that he's cared about, that he's campaigned about, that his base feels extremely strongly about? It looks like he threw, who cares about throwing the Republic, his fellow Republicans under the bus? In this case, the argument went, he threw his base under the bus, and he thought, oh, okay, I need to get him back. Well, let's see. How do we do that? Let's just say, okay, if we're going to do a long-term um, uh, DACA fix, then you've got to add this other stuff to it, which you know the Democrats will never go along with, and a lot of Republicans have, have, uh, have real problems with too. This is the fickle guy who pivots this way. Then he goes that way. He watches what the press says. He watches... Um, what the polls say, and you never – his word means next to nothing. Charmel, right, I, I, I want to go, go to you. He's managed uh, well, to – sorry. Charmel, I want to go to you because right now if, if, you're, if you're Nancy Pelosi and you're Chuck Schumer and you're sitting in the Oval Office and the president looks like, hey, this guy reached across the aisle and made a deal on DACA – you walk out and say, hey, we got a deal on DACA. Then the president goes out and says, yeah, we don't have a deal. It was a suggestion. And then comes out and pulls what he pulled on Friday. I mean, not only has he lost his base because he originally he did the deal with Schumer and Pelosi and the Democrats. Now he's taken that away, and he's basically, as Alan pointed out, through every, this guy's an army of one with no major supporters on the Hill anymore to give him any credibility. How does he expect 
to get what he wants done, let alone trying to strike a deal to get it done? Well, I mean, the honest answer is I think that he expects to rule by fiat, right? I, I think that Donald Trump, it, this is a more existential question, but I think he still thinks that this is the Trump organization where he just said something and it happened. And he's still, and Alan said this earlier, Kenneth said this earlier, I've said this earlier, he still hasn't adapted to the fact that you need to build consensus and you need to craft deals that people want in order to get things done. And right, what he's done is somehow succeed in, making, in creating a deal that makes zero people happy. The Democrats hate it and the Republicans hate it. His base hates it because it's still granting immunity to DACA, to DACA recipients. And of course the Democrats hate it because of all of the you know, draconian restrictions that he puts on, that, he, that he's put on immigration. So I think that right to echo Allen's and Ken's point earlier, we keep trying to apply logic to his thought process when that's clearly not how he operates. Yes, a logical not, actor would never would never engage in these shenanigans, but he's not a logical actor and he he does he has these fifteen minute attention span cycles where he, he all he really thinks about is creating the next headline. He doesn't think about long term execution and he doesn't think about whether or not this, this tactic is going to work. All he thinks about is the headline that it generates. I mean, Admiral Ken, is, is, is it bad that we should expect to apply logic to the presidency when we have a president in office that we, we expect some sort of logic there? I, I think it's just basic human nature that two plus two always equals four. I mean, we've, we've lived our lives, um, um, some of us for over 50 years, living with the expectation that two plus two will always equal four. And when you meet someone who, um, who, who's in a position of power and they keep violating that, you, you know, it, it, becomes to the, it gets to the point where you're thinking, okay, how, how many times do we have to do this? I mean, what is going on with this? Help me, you know, make it stop. And so I don't think that it's wrong for us to expect it. I think it's wrong for um, the president to behave in the manner that he is behaving. Does Alan Moore, does that include expecting a president to show up in a disaster zone and not throw T-shirts out of an air gun like the seventh inning stretch at Nats Park? He, he doesn't have a clue. He, he's, he's, never, he's never paid attention to how uh, other presidents have done it. He seems to show no interest in, in learning and thinking about it ahead of time. What are we going to be faced with there? What are they going to want me to do? Now, a couple times he's gone somewhere and, and, and helped uh, dish up food. Yeah, he he is he's spur of the moment this this blind faith that his instincts are always spot on and sorry, Mr. President, they're not. Um, you've had a bunch of yes people around you all of your life, and now you look like a fool. Um, you know, it wasn't it it it, it wasn't grotesque in my judgment, it was just stupid. Um, and it was just, it showed a lack of thinking it through, a lack of awareness of, of 
of of, of self awareness. I'm the president. Well, Alan, if I do it, it's got to be cool. And Alan, uh, let me ask you. You know, I Alan, let me just jump in. Let yeah. me just jump in real quick. Alan, is it is it ignorance or is it contempt for the I have to act a certain way aspect? Well, there's definitely contempt, but 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 uh, and this hey. You know, they all these experts are telling me what to do. Guess what? I'm president. Nobody thought I could be president. I'm president. I got elected president. Nobody tell me what to do or not. You know, I'll listen to you for a little while. I'll consider it. You know, maybe you'll make some sense to me. Um, but generally, I'm my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with facts. Uh, is is his modus? Yeah, well, Sharon will ask the same question to you: is 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 what we're seeing out of President Trump a a, a lack of understanding, ignorance, or just disdain for the "I'm Trump and I'm president and you're not"? I think it's a little bit of both, right? I think for the Staka deal, it is more uh, generated through through thoughtlessness. I, I don't think that he really. When he was campaigning, you know, he, along with the rest, <laughs> along with most educated opinion, didn't think that he was actually going to be elected. And so he made all these outlandish promises without any real thought about how he was going to achieve them. He made them, and a lot of them, I, I would argue that he made simply for the sake of getting attention. And now suddenly he's president, and he realizes that he has to follow through on them. And so, you know, first, I think it was not understanding what DACA did and then saying it was repealed, and then being educated on what DACA did. And I think he does have some compassion in him, right, because reporting said that he was he actually did feel for the plight of a lot of these dreamers, and he did feel that it was unfair right. that they'd been brought into this country as children, and then and that suddenly you know, they were getting kicked out to a country they'd never, they'd never right. lived in before. So then he tried to make this deal with Schumer and the Democrats based on that compassion, and then when the backlash came from his right flank – he immediately retreated back to his position of trot, of putting forth this proposal that he could then go out back to his base and argue like, look, this is what I promised you during the campaign, and I'm I, and I'm fulfilling it. So but I, I think here's, that here's, you know his policy missteps are much more born out of ignorance than they are out of arrogance. And and here's what gets me, Sharmila, is is the fact that. He, it's one thing if we could say it was ignorance, and it's one thing if we if we could say it's just contempt and disdain for the institution. What really scares me more is that blended area. Give you an example. Uh, obviously, over the weekend, the the news broke about uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein, the huge power broker and producer in Hollywood, who has since been fired from his own production company that he started. Uh, has been pretty much vilified in every circle, both entertainment and political. Uh, but as the news came out, President Trump was asked on the uh, on the uh, South Lawn as he was going to Marine One to go to an event about the Harvey Weinstein issue. And his comment was, <clears throat> I've known Harvey Weinstein for a long time. Uh, I can't, I, you know, I kind of, ex- I kind of expected this. To me, after the Billy Bush tapes and everything that you've gone through, why would you throw a brick at that glass house? That's not I, – I don't know if that's ignorance or if it's contempt. Admiral Ken, help me out here. 
I think the word you're looking for is hubris, man. Hubris. Well, we know we're not going to get that out of him. No, no, no. I mean, no, no, no. Not, I, you oh, know, that's what he has. That's what he has. He's oh, got hubris. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah, and yeah, that, yeah. And, and, that, and that's why you would see something like that. I mean, in, in his mind, in his mind, and, you know, while we've not met, I've never, I don't believe I've ever met a sex offender, you know, or, or someone who's carried on in the way that Trump has, but I've met, I've met liars and cheaters, and in their minds, if they didn't get caught, if they got away with it, it never happened. In his mind, he got away with it. It he he became president in spite of it. It never happened. Not even not even in 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 his mind is he even thinking about Billy Bush. It's 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 the hubris of the fact that he's now president and he can toss whatever brick at whatever he wants because his base, you know, even though even I I, I just I sat there blown away uh, watching women defend him. On, uh, on on the news cycle, going wow! I'm glad I'm not related to any of these people. I really am. But I'll tell you what's scary about what all is. this? It's hubris. I'll tell you what's scary about all this is the fact that it, more and more and deeper and deeper we get in this administration, political commentary like we do is becoming less political commentary and more mental case study. This is more <laughs> psych 101 than it is political science 101. Good God, uh, Sharma. Speaking of uh, speaking of Harvey, uh, mm-hmm. the the there was a a certain amount of quietness that came out of the Democratic Party uh, when this first broke. Now, uh, your old boss uh, Hillary Clinton came out with a very scathing statement today uh, regarding the whole situation. But is is he a potential? Damage point for Democrats running in the midterms coming up? I don't really think so, right? Harvey Weinstein's main contribution to Democratic politics was as a fundraiser, I think, to the extent that he, he was a big the, money the donor. Candidates, yeah, that he was that he was a sorry, that I, what did I say? That he was a donor. Um, and so I think to the extent that anyone received his campaign contributions gives them back fully and publicly. I don't see how you can really tie his um, tie his awful, awful, awful behavior to to any Democratic elected official. Alan Moore, do you agree? Does Harvey does Harvey Weinstein become political fodder for the Republicans, and is that a damage point for the Democrats? Well, <laughs> it, it, it's definitely political fodder because his all of his money uh, went to Democrats and. Uh, and all of these uh, elected officials are falling all over themselves to, to quote, give back um, or give to, uh, to, to women's charities uh, the amounts equal to uh, his gifts to them, uh, ex- except for people who are no longer uh, interested in running for office, like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton finally today, I think, uh, said she was appalled to hear all of this, but no discussion of giving the money back. If I were her, you know, it's like, hey, give the money back, give the money, give. She's not running for office anymore, so it's not as though she's waiting to use it. It's it's just some something that she'll have to live with and take some flack over. Um, uh, but but uh, it's it's not it, it it's not going to be a huge political issue for the Democrats. They the people people have had some experience in the past with 
uh, with distancing themselves from these uh, really bad, disgusting actors. The, there are bigger issues that are important surrounding Weinstein. How could he get away with this for lo- so long? How come no one stepped forward? What was it that, about his power and his ability to do harm to them that caused what otherwise appear to be strong, independent women from stepping forward? That's a really interesting question for the society. There's a bigger there's a bigger question than all of that I think even Alan is the question still comes up is you know from what we're hearing in the rel- in the revelations from a lot of uh those that were involved or those that were closely tied is that this is not an isolated incident is that there is a culture out in Hollywood similar to this which is, I think, more disturbing more than anything, uh, considering the sanctimonious way that Hollywood portrays itself as being, you know, we're equal, we're here, we're strong, we know, because, you know, the, the, the right doesn't know, because they're just pigs. It, 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 there's, almost a, there's almost a sense of hypocrisy coming out that's being revealed and as I think we're going to, as we peel away the onion, I think we're going to see more of that. I mean, I mean, Shumla, it, it, that's got to be a fear, particularly with the Hollywood political celeb community that loves getting involved in politics. They've got to know that they're going to have to wash off some of this hypocrisy. Oh, absolutely. I, I think you're right, Justin. This goes far toward, far more uh, towards. Hollywood's credibility than it does towards uh, politicians who accepted Weinstein's donations. I I think that you're absolutely right. You know, I I work, I used to work tandem to the uh, entertainment industry as a film finance lawyer. And, um, you know, I I know some people in the industry and these rumors have been around for years and years, right? None of this is news to anyone who, you know, knows anyone in the industry or anyone who even reads like gossip blogs. Um, I, I think maybe the extent of it was not wasn't quite understood, and sort of the when if you read the New Yorker piece, especially today, some of the really shocking allegations are right. really beyond the pale, and I don't think anyone expected that. But you're absolutely right that if, if this problem isn't limited to Harvey Weinstein, he might have been a very yeah. bad perpetrator and the most powerful person. But it, this, these rumors happened with Brian Singer two or three years ago. Yep. They, they happen. And, and people much lower down the food chain than Harvey. So I think right. that you're apt to, And, I mean, I, I will point out that Hollywood is not the only industry that this is limited to. It's the industry that we know best, but sexual harassment is certainly not limited to the entertainment industry. Agreed. Agreed. And, and, and it's reprehensible. We've got 60 seconds left. On behalf of uh, Admiral Ken Carradine, Alan Moore, and, of course, our, our, our great addition to the team, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I cannot thank her enough for, for joining in on this, uh, Sharmila Achari. Sharmila, thanks a lot for joining us. Ken, uh, Ken you, Alan, we'll see you next week. Sharmila, we'll see you next week. We'll be back on Blog Talk Radio for the best political talk show you've never heard of. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. You can follow us on Twitter and on our Facebook page. You know how to reach us. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye. This 
is backroom politics.